As we begin the message this morning, let me ask you a question that obviously you don't need to answer out loud, but maybe it will just get you thinking about what we're going to consider this morning from God's Word. The question is this, do you have people in this world who hate you? I do, unfortunately. If you do, and if there are several of them, and if you happen to be around them from time to time, then you have a little taste of what our Lord experienced when He was here on the earth. The difference, of course, is that He was perfectly innocent and we are not. As difficult as it is to fathom, there were people who hated Jesus. They despised him. They were venomous toward him. They hated him so much that they were willing to do whatever they could do to trap him in order to get rid of him. And it only got worse as the time drew closer for him to go to the cross to pay for our sins. If you are not already there, please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, as we continue our trek through Mark's Gospel. We come this morning to verses 28 through 34 of chapter 12. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Let me remind you of the setting of these verses, and we see as Mark begins this paragraph with the word then, he is stringing together a story, or he is piecing together a story. So we need to remind ourselves of the context of this story. Here in Mark 12, we are looking at events that took place during the last week of our Lord's life. That may not be clear at first glance because we're only in chapter 12 of Mark's gospel and there are a total of 16 chapters. So it appears maybe that we have a long way to go to get to the end of the story. Well, that is because Mark gives so much focus to the events that took place leading up to and following the crucifixion. Chapter 11 opens with a description of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. That opened the final week of Jesus' life. 
The next day, Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it of the crass commercialism that was going on, just as he had done at the beginning of his ministry. The religious leaders of Jerusalem were furious about both of those events, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Rather than seeing the triumphal entry as a fulfillment of of messianic prophecy, they were jealous of the attention being given to Jesus by the multitudes. They were also concerned that all this commotion might result in the Romans coming down on them in some way and changing the status quo. They didn't want that because, frankly, they liked things as they were. They liked the influence they had over the people, and they liked all the money they were making off of the people, which is why they were so angry that Jesus had thrown out the money changers. Jesus was a threat to their positions and their influence and their profit and their religion. Thus, instead of embracing him as their Messiah and King, they set their faces against him and opposed him in every way they could. That's what you see throughout chapter 11. Chapter 12 continues to describe the relentless opposition. Chapter 12 opens with Jesus telling a parable to warn the religious leaders of his day that they are going to face the judgment of God for refusing his grace. Shockingly, that warning didn't have any effect on them whatsoever. Because chapter 12, verse 13 says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Jesus' warning to them about coming judgment was like water off a duck's back. It had no effect, and they just continued in their quest. Their hatred of Jesus had blinded their eyes and stopped up their ears. They couldn't see or hear anything because they want so desperately to get rid of Jesus. This is further seen in the fact that here in verse 13 we are told the Pharisees joined with their traditional enemies, the Herodians. Because we don't live in that day and age, because we don't live in that culture, we could easily read that verse and pass right by that statement without realizing just how shocking it is. The Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. They didn't mix. They didn't cooperate. They didn't work together. In some ways, they were polar opposites. So when you see these two groups coming together, you know they are desperate. They were willing to set aside their hatred for each other because their hatred for Jesus was even more intense. But their plot failed. So the Sadducees decided to try their hand at it. Verse 18 tells us, Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him a question. Now, remember, this was the same day. You need to picture that in your mind. Jesus in the temple complex, in the temple area, the attacking questions that were being thrown at Jesus were coming at him like a rapid-fire machine gun, one after the other. It is tragically sad to realize that in the final days of our Lord's life, when he faced the indescribable agony of the cross, he was wearied and weighed down by the constant questioning and harassment of groups of people who were looking for anything they could find to use against him. 
But that is exactly what happened in his final days. Speaking of his final days, we don't know exactly what day it was when all of these interactions took place because Mark doesn't tell us the day. It was probably Tuesday or Wednesday of our Lord's final week. It's very difficult to pinpoint the exact days that all of these events took place because the gospel writers just crammed them all in right here at the end. And frankly, they're not all that interested in giving us the exact day that each one of these conversations took place. Instead, what they want us to see is what a busy and full and hectic and demanding and stressful week it was leading to the cross. The point is, Jesus didn't have any sort of reprieve in his final days before his crucifixion. Ministry was exceedingly demanding and exhausting to the very end. So this is Tuesday or Wednesday of Jesus' final week. The pressure is building. The antagonism is building. The hatred against Jesus is building. The religious leaders are becoming desperate to find something to use against Jesus. That's what motivates the scribes to step forward. And so we read in verse 28, our text for this morning, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first or the foremost commandment of all? The reference to having heard them reasoning together here in this verse is probably related to the previous story in verses 18 through 27, which we looked at last week. You will remember that the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus, but they failed. So now the Pharisees, as represented by this scribe, are going to take a run at it. They are going to give it another shot. To really appreciate this incident we're going to consider this morning We need to understand who this man was that came to Jesus. Mark just says, then one of the scribes came. Matthew tells us this man was from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the scribes were sort of overlapping groups. Matthew tells us this man was from the Pharisees and that he was a lawyer. Now this man was not an expert in legal matters in the way we think of it today. You know, like building codes or... Uh, you, you know, uh, employment codes or criminal codes or that. Type. No, he was an expert in Mosaic law. These men had developed a complex system of cataloging and categorizing all of the Old Testament laws. Now, you've read your Bible. You, you see how many laws there are throughout the Old Testament. Well, these men gave their lives to this task of categorizing and cataloging all of the laws. Most of the common people could not understand their system, which is exactly what these lawyers wanted because they wanted to be one up on the people. They didn't want people to understand. Here's what they taught. They taught that there were 248 positive laws in the Old Testament, which they say is equal to the number of parts of the human body. I don't know where they got that, but that was their rationale, 248 positive laws. They taught there were 365 negative commandments, which is equal to the days of the year. Now, you may be aware of the fact that Jews use a 360-day year, but they recognize that most all of the people use a 365-day year. So they said 248 positive laws 
equal to the number of parts of the human body. 365 negative commandments equal to the days of the year. You put them together, you have 613. They add them together, came up with 613 total commandments, which they taught is equal to the number of letters in the Hebrew Ten Commandments. Now, I don't know if that's the case. I've never counted all the letters in the Hebrew Ten Commandments, but that's the kind of thing they did. It was really ridiculous. And they had this complex system. Some of the commandments they called light. They put on one side. Some they called heavy. And they were all in between. The, this lawyer knew all these details. So he figured that he would get Jesus' opinion on the matter. Matthew makes it clear he was testing Jesus. However, it's interesting to note that according to Mark's account here, this lawyer may not have been as antagonistic toward Jesus as were most of the other Pharisees. Or maybe his interaction with Jesus began to move him in a positive direction. Whatever the case, he asked Jesus a question. The question was basically this. Jesus, of all the 613 commandments, which we spend our lives trying to figure out how to categorize them, out of all those 613 commandments, which one do you say is the most important? Which one takes top priority? Which one is the heaviest? And in verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all, the foremost of all, the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, this is the first commandment. In answer to this man's question, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6 actually says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus adds the word mind. This illustrates the point that Jesus was not trying to make a huge distinction. Now, there is some distinction, but he's not trying to make a huge distinction between the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not really his primary point. He was using a variety of terms to emphasize the idea that we are to love the Lord with everything that is within us. Just grab whatever you want to, you know, heart, soul, mind, strength. Is love God with everything within. Today, we might use the expression Love the Lord your God and give it all you got. Don't love the Lord in a half-hearted kind of fashion. Beloved, that in and of itself tells us that it is possible for us to love the Lord in a half-hearted kind of way. All love for the Lord is not necessarily all that it should be. Let that be a warning to us. It is possible for us to love the Lord, but to love Him in a half-hearted kind of way. But that falls short of how we are to love Him. We are to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said this is the first or foremost commandment. The word first means number one, top in rank, highest priority. And according to Matthew's account, Jesus also said, this is the great commandment. The word great there in Matthew's account carries the idea of weight. 
The Greek word that Jesus used is the word megale, from which we get our English word mega. So Jesus said, this is the mega command. This is the big one. This, this is the heaviest of all. Now, if that's the case, and it certainly is, then we need to make sure that we understand this. And we are doing this. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does that mean? You see, it's easy for us to come up with our own definitions and then assume that we really do love the Lord this way, when in reality, maybe we don't. So what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How does the Lord himself describe or define this kind of love? I think the starting point is Psalm 18.1, which says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The first thing to realize is that loving the Lord is a choice. It's not merely an emotion. It's not merely a feeling. Waving your hands over your head and shouting hallelujah doesn't automatically mean that you love the Lord. Going around saying praise the Lord doesn't automatically mean you love the Lord. Singing hymns or choruses that say you love the Lord doesn't automatically mean you do love the Lord. Sentiment is not really the issue. Choice is. How do we know this? Well, look at what Jesus said about it over in John 14. Turn from Mark past Luke's gospel to John chapter 14. One brief verse tells us John chapter 14, verse 15 says this. If you love me, keep my commandments. Or as some translations render, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's pretty basic, pretty straightforward. So how does Jesus measure our love for him? One word. Obedience. Do we do what he wants us to do instead of what we want to do? Or do we just simply view the whole thing as an optional choice? That's really the issue. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen to what Jesus said. I'll just read it to you from Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Another verse very similar to that. Luke 6 Verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Why don't we ever hear this kind of verse emphasized today on Christian radio or Christian TV? Instead, it seems that all we hear about today is self-esteem, name it and claim it, easy believism, cheap grace. Without realizing it, Maybe we've formulated a Christianity that will accommodate self-centeredness and selfishness. We claim to love the Lord, but it's, it's a self-centered kind of skewed love. It's not the kind of love spoken of in John 3.16 where it says, God so loved, or God loved in this way that he gave. Sadly, that's not the kind of love some Christians have for the Lord. 
Instead, most Christians think that because they claim to love the Lord, then he ought to give to them. They just expect that. And if the Lord doesn't do what they expect him to do, they become disenchanted or disillusioned with him. Whatever happened to the kind of love for the Lord Jesus that desires to give to him? You see, we have a strange definition of love today. We have a definition of love that just doesn't really fit with Scripture. Let me show you this in John 13. Just, we were just reading a moment ago in John. Look at John 13. You're probably familiar with the setting. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. John 13 through 16 is called the upper room discourse. This is the night before Jesus will be crucified. And he wants to take this one last opportunity to teach his men about the true nature of love, genuine love. And notice verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Very interesting Greek term here. This, This word end can mean end in the sense of time. In other words, Jesus loved his men all the way to the end. Never stopped loving them. Or this word could carry the idea of end in the sense of uttermost. Jesus loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the max. If you were to compare Luke's gospel, try to you know, coordinate them, you would find that just prior to this, the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. Besides that, they were lying around the floor, reclining at table with dirty feet sticking in each other's face. So I'm certain that the Lord doesn't feel really sentimental about his men at this time. If anything, he was probably feeling some frustration. But notice what verse 1 says. It says he loved them. How do we know that? Verse 2. And Supper being ended, or as supper was during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So again, I ask the question, how do we know? Verse 1 says Jesus loved his men. How do we know he loved them? His love wasn't seen in feelings or sentiment. His love was seen in the fact that he gave of himself to serve them. That's love. That's real love. That's genuine love. So if we don't give of ourselves to serve the Lord Jesus, to live for him, then we really shouldn't claim to love him. Let me illustrate this from John 21. We'll just stay in John's gospel. Go over a few pages to chapter 21. And again, let me give you the background. In Matthew 26, Peter had told the Lord that he would never forsake him. Never. He told the Lord that he loved him too much to, to deny him ever. But you know the story. It was only a matter of hours. And Peter did deny the Lord. That's why in Mark's account, when Jesus is 
predicting the betrayal. It's very detailed, very specific. Jesus says, tonight, this night, before, I mean, before the cock crows, he is, it's, it's Peter, it's right around the corner. And yet Peter vehemently denied it. Vehemently just kept insisting he would never do that. But he did. And verse 1 of John 21 says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Many commentators suggest that Peter was saying that he was going back to his old profession. And that's possible. Maybe he's so discouraged at this point from his fears that he says, I I can't do this. I'm going back to what I can do. I know the fishing business. I'm going back to fishing. But God is not going to let Peter succeed in his old profession because even though Peter's love for Jesus has failed, Jesus' love for Peter hasn't failed. So verse 3 continues, They all said, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. You know, Peter's love for Jesus failed a lot. But one thing you can say about Peter, he was always in a big hurry to get his act back together. He plunges into the sea. Verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. Although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread And gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want us to notice who it was who took the initiative to restore this love relationship. It was the Lord. He comes to the shore. He calls out. And when Peter came to the Lord, the Lord wasn't waiting there with a whip. He was waiting there with breakfast. And then this conversation, verse 15, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice Jesus through this calls Peter by his old name, Simon, rather than his new name, Peter, because Peter was acting like his old self leading up to this. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, 
You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asks Peter three times because Peter had denied him three times. But what I want us to notice is this is such an important passage for us to understand Jesus' definition of loving him. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And Peter, Peter gets the response from Jesus. Well, if you say you love me, Peter, let me see it flesh out in the way you order your life. If you say you love me, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, whatever it happens to be. But if you say you love me, Peter, then serve me. Beloved, love for the Lord is a false claim if there is no selfless service to him. Did you catch that? Love for the Lord is a false claim if there's no selfless service to him. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what do we spend our time doing? How do we spend our money? To what do we give our energy? Is our priority to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in some way with our lives? Or are we content just to attend church services? If we are, then according to Jesus, we don't really love him. If we're not living for him, if we're not serving him in life in some way, we don't love him. Some Christians will say, well, but I'm just so busy. Well, then we need to simplify our lifestyle. If we want to serve the Lord, then we may have to simplify our lifestyle. We, we need to learn to say no to certain other things. There are so many things calling for our attention. We live in a world that has so much to offer, so much for us to do, that we tend to forget the ultimate non-negotiable priority of loving the Lord God and loving the Lord Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Beloved, I don't want us to do that. So we need to maybe pause every now and then and say, do I take the time to examine my priorities? Do I ever look at my choice, choices in life? Do I really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that demonstrated by selflessness to him? Do I really love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? According to Jesus, that is the first and great commandment. Now back to our text there in Mark 12. So Jesus answered this man's question, but he wasn't finished with his answer yet. He adds another thought. Mark 12, verse 31. Jesus said, and, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than than these. Here Jesus says the command the second commandment is like the first one, which means it too is a great command. It too is a mega command. And here Jesus quotes Leviticus 19:18. That too is a mega command. By the way, as a little side note, please notice what Jesus said here because many people twist his statement whether intentionally or inadvertently and end up misrepresenting Jesus he did not say that we are that we have to learn to love ourselves 
Many people grab this passage and say that from, that, that's what they say, but that's not what Jesus said. He said we have to love our neighbor as ourselves because we do love ourselves. That's a given. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh. We do love ourselves. So the command is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Jesus says this also is a great command, which means it takes top priority, top rank, on the same plane as the first one. In other words, it's, it's as if Jesus said to this scribe, you have asked one question, but it takes two verses to answer your one question. Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 together form the greatest mega command. In his book, Balancing Life's Demands, Dr. J. Grant Howard has written this, quote, According to the text, these two commandments are of equal importance. The second commandment is not of second importance. It is simply the second of the two mentioned as together comprising the chief commandment. The supreme quality and character of the second commandment is like that of the first. The Pharisee asks for one commandment. The Lord, in essence, is saying it takes two commandments to adequately answer the question. Or, to put it in his own words, here in verse 31, there is no other one commandment greater than these two. End quote. In other words, Jesus said, take Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, put them together, and you have the mega commandment. You want to know which is the big one, the really heavy one? That's it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the mega commandment. And then this fascinating part of the story that is not in Matthew's account, but in Mark's account, verse 32, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is an amazing statement. It was especially amazing coming from someone like this who was so immersed in ceremonial practices and in a culture that exalted ceremonial practices. This guy understood the truth that all of those ceremonies were, in a sense, meaningless when compared to this issue of loving God and loving your neighbor. But I want you to notice something else that's fascinating about this part of the story. This guy understood the truth, but it was only intellectual at this point. He hadn't yet let go of whatever was holding him back to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do you know that? We know that by what Jesus said in the next verse. Verse 34. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Jesus silenced his critics at this point. But notice what Jesus said to this man. This is, this is absolutely fascinating. You are not far 
from the kingdom of God. What is that saying? This guy wasn't far from the kingdom, but he wasn't in it yet. He could say all the right things intellectually, and maybe he even believed them. But he hadn't yet made the commitment volitionally. Oh, what an illustration. What an illustration of the fact that it is possible for someone to know the truth well. And maybe even believe it intellectually, but not be a child of God. Do you see that? Jesus said, hey, you you said it well. You, You answered wisely. You're not far from the kingdom. But saying you're not far means you're not in it either. It is possible. Please hear this. It is possible for someone to know the truth well and even believe it all intellectually but not be a child of God. Is that you? Maybe you can say all the right things and maybe you even believe all the right things intellectually, but you haven't yielded your will to the Lord Jesus. Jesus might say to you, You know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You at least have the facts right. You at least have the information right. You have the data right. But you're not in the kingdom. You're not a child of God. You're not in the family of God. Please, please hear what Jesus says at this point. Please. One One of the most immense burdens on my heart is to think of people to, to think of people standing before the Lord someday. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. I, every time I teach on them, I say they're the scariest verses in the Bible where people say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then they list all these things and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how shocking that will be. I mean, it's one thing to not end up in heaven, and you know you're not going there because you know you're, you have no interest in going there. There are people like that in society. But what a shock it's going to be for people who think they're going to be accepted only to hear Jesus say, you're not accepted. Or something like this. Matt, you, you weren't far from the kingdom, but you never went in. I, I, again, I have to is that you? Are you in this category? Someone who knows all the facts, all the information, all the data. You maybe even believe it intellectually. But that's as far as it goes. There's nothing on the heart level, nothing volitional. Please look at what Jesus said to this man and realize this could be you. This could be you. Don't experience the indescribable shock of standing before Jesus someday, assuming you're getting in only to hear him say, you're not getting in. Nothing, nothing could compare with that horror. Absolutely nothing. Let's bow together. So as we bow our heads in closing this morning, first of all, I want to appeal to those who here today, do genuinely know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are genuinely, truly a child of God. So the question that faces those in that category is, do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, 
and strength? That's the question we need to face and ask and contemplate. Remember, it's possible to love the Lord, but only love Him half-heartedly. So it would behoove every one of us in this room to say, do I, do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Does my life demonstrate that? And then secondly, the second issue that needs to be addressed or contemplated is this. Are you one of those who is not far from the kingdom because you have all the information, you believe it intellectually, but that's as far as it goes? Are you one of those in the Matthew 7 category who thinks, well, I'm going to get in because look at all the things I can say to Jesus I did. Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We, we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did wonders in your name. Lord, look at all this stuff we did only to hear Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew you. So do you really know, not know about, know of, do you really know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you really have him as your Lord and Savior? Nothing, absolutely nothing is more important than that issue. So, Father, as we close our time together this morning, and close our service, close our time of looking at your word, may your Holy Spirit take the powerful truth of your word to do its work in our hearts and lives, whatever that need is, because in a crowd this size, it's so diverse. There are those present, certainly, who truly can call you Father because they are right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. And for those in that category, the pressing question is, do I really love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I love my neighbor as myself? And for others, there's a different pressing question. It's the question of, am I really in the kingdom? Or am I like this man who can say all the right stuff and say all the right things, but I'm not really in the family of God? And undoubtedly, in a crowd this size, there are some in that category. And Father, our prayer is that you would do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to break through, to get through, lest they find themselves standing before Jesus someday, assuming they're going to get in, only to hear him say they're not getting in. Oh, what horror. What terrifying words. So, Father, work in our hearts by your Spirit to accomplish your good purposes. We pray these things together in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.